0: Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves.
1: And I'm Don Bishop. We're your hosts for Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Jeff Courier, and he'll be answering your most important questions on European fly fishing techniques. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Jeff a question, go to our homepage www.askaboutflyfishing.com, and click on the link below the description of the show where it says click here to ask Jeff your most important questions. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll be trying to answer as many of these questions as possible live during the show.
0: This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about one hour after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast anytime. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing as ask about fly fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form.
1: When we return, we'll be talking with Jeff Courier about European nymphing and fly fishing lake techniques.
0: The RL Winston Rod Company is the maker of the revolutionary Boron 2X, the first and only fly rods that are both delicate yet powerful and weigh up to one-third less than any others. Second-generation boron graphite composite allows us to build lighter, more responsive rods while maintaining outstanding fish-fighting power. Go to your local fly shop and ask to cast the Boron 2X, offered in 3-6 through weight, and then enter our Cast a Winston sampler contest. You could win up to six Winston rods. Visit www.winstonrods.com for contest details and locate your nearest Winston dealer. Cast a Winston at the best place possible, your local specialty fly shop. Before we introduce Jeff, we'd like to let you know about the gift we're giving away tonight. For our drawing, Jeff has been kind enough to provide an autographed copy of his book, Quick and Easy Guide to Warm Water Fly Fishing. In his book, he covers types of water, flies and equipment, casting, strategies, and details about both popular and exotic warm water species. Jeff also created all the illustrations and photographs contained in the book, and I know you'll be impressed. We will also be giving away a one-year subscription to Fly Fusion Canada's premier fishing magazine, along with an additional copy of the Winter Edition, which has step-by-step tying instructions for the European tungsten caddis nymph. And those instructions uh, are given by Jack Dennis, which is uh, Jeff's partner in crime up there in Jackson, Wyoming. So if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our home page and look for the link under Jeff's section that says, Register for the Drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, And we'll announce the winners at the end of the show.
1: When it comes to fly fishing, Jeff Courier does it all. As a teacher, author, artist, guide, industry operative, and international traveler, just to name a few. With over 30 years' experience in fly fishing, Jeff manages all fishing operations at the Jack Dennis Fly Shop in Jackson, Wyoming. He's guided in the waters around Yellowstone, led fly fishers to exotic destinations around the globe, and he has taken over 160 kinds of fish on a fly rod in freshwater and salt in over 30 countries. In the winter months, he can be found traveling throughout the US demonstrating and lecturing about virtually all aspects of fly fishing. When he's not traveling, Jeff is writing or painting. His watercolors of fish are in high demand, and his articles and photography have appeared in magazines, books, catalogs, and brochures. He's appeared on television and fishing the West, in search of flywater, real adventures, and fly fish TV. He has also authored Courier's Quick and Easy Guide to Saltwater Fly Fishing as well as Courier's Quick and Easy Guide to Warmwater Fly Fishing. As a member of Team USA since 1998, Jeff led the Americans to their first ever top 10 finish at the 2003 World Fly Fishing Championship in Spain. Notably, on that occasion, he was the bronze medalist in that competition, the first time a North American has ever medaled in world fly fishing competition. So it's a great pleasure to welcome Jeff Courier to ask about Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks for joining us
2: tonight. Thank you very much, you guys. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So, Jeff,
0: what's more nerve-wracking for you, competing internationally or catching some of those species with the big, sharp teeth?
2: Uh, I'd say competing internationally. That, uh, <laughs> that gets your nerves up.
0: <laughs> well, hopefully we can talk about that a little bit more as the, the night uh, goes on here, because it sure plays a role, I'm sure, in in developing your techniques so that you be you can be more competitive on the international level as the, the things that we're going to talk about tonight pertain directly to that. Let, let's start out with, uh, and what more appropriately than a question from the Netherlands, uh, one of our European fly fishing Partners over there, uh Jay in the Netherlands, and I know Jay listens in a lot because he submits questions has submitted questions in the past, but he says what are in, in your view uh what are the fundamental differences between the American style of fishing compared to the european way and I, I I think you can kind of develop this out just in general because people are going well what's you know what's different I mean how is there an American how is there a European way so maybe you can give us some history and background about that
2: yeah, no problem. Uh, it's quite simple. European fishing is actually tougher than what we have here in the United States, particularly in the Rocky Mountains where most of us fly fish for trout. Uh, the Europeans have been fishing to their trout species for thousands of years. We've been fishing to ours for just hundreds of years. and uh, there's also quite a few less fish over there in Europe to catch. you know pollution, especially in the uh, Eastern Bloc countries has uh, lowered populations of fish and uh, let's say you were, my friend Vladi from Poland and you had to go fishing and catch some fish for food and there weren't many there, you'd get pretty darn good at it. Whereas, like today I was fishing and yesterday, you know, anytime I go fishing within an hour of my house, I know I'm going to catch a lot of fish and I don't have to be nearly as careful. So they've developed techniques that uh, let's just say that they don't miss as many of the smart fish as we do because we miss our smart fish, but there's another easy one to catch right around the corner so we don't notice that we're not fishing as hard and, and using these techniques.
1: Hmm. Well, Jeff, uh, we, we see a lot of handles placed on the techniques. Uh, it seems like each different country in Europe has a, a different uh, uh, nymphing technique. Uh, what uh, what are what are the different ones that are out there? Well, the
2: ones you hear about the most are the Czech nymphing, which you know I refer to as Polish nymphing because the history that I've got from the Polish nymphing is that the Poles invented this style of nymphing, which is a short-line nymphing. I'm sure we're going to get into it with the questions. And the Czechs have stolen it from the Poles. Now, who knows? You know, it's like neighboring states here. We all have our little differences, and we say we did it before them. Uh, The bottom line is, though, the guy that is probably the best at this Polish style nymphing is Vladi Cibuña. And uh, he won the gold medal in Finland and pretty much put this Polish nymphing on the map. And because he's Polish, I think the guys have the right to call it Polish nymphing. Now these techniques
1: that are used predominantly for trout, I believe, are they suitable for other species, such as steelhead,
2: or use with two-handed spay rods? You know, I don't don't do a lot of steelheading. I've dabbled with it. And from my understanding, that uh, steelhead do take nymphs quite well. But it's kind of not the way you're supposed to steelhead fish. I think that if the water on a, on a steelhead river was a little bit off color and you knew where the fish were and you went in there and thumped some big nymphs out there or steelhead flies in the Polish nymphing manner, I think you would tear them up. I think it would be really good.
0: Well, so then when we're talking then, uh, and there seems to be more publicity about Czech nymphing than there is Polish nymphing, but those two are basically, you said, uh, very similar, or the same types of rigs that, and like we said, we'll get into that in a few minutes. But then the Spanish style that you wanted to talk about tonight, too, that is a a different animal in itself, correct?
2: That is very different. The Spanish nymphing uh, is a long, long leader type nymphing, very light tippet. I mean, just an example, you may have a 25-foot-long leader ending in 7X tippet. Uh, Very clear water, which is why they have to do this method, whereas You know, the Polish nymphine that is used frequently over in Eastern Europe, the the waters are usually a little bit off color. And also, they're fishing for grayling there, whereas over in Spain, it's almost all brown trout. So, yeah, it is very different. And, uh, you know, when I got off the plane in Spain and and our little host showed me this new technique, I said, how am I going to learn this in a week?
0: There's that much to it, huh? We've got a lot to learn tonight. (laughs) Yeah, we do. Mary Bransford in Anchorage, Alaska, wrote in, and she said, hi, Jeff, just what is it that makes Polish or Spanish nymphing different or even better than what we do in the States? Now, you, you did say just a minute ago that it's tougher fishing over there. So um, what, what makes these methods better or more effective than, than what we do over here in the States?
2: Okay. Well, first of all, there are situations over here where our you know, high-stick nymphing or an indicator nymphing might be better than their method. Um, but in general, the Polish nymphing is deadly it's a short line method and it covers water better than than the nymphing that we do what they do with the short line is they literally put six to three six inches to three feet of fly line out the tip of the rod and they fish they cast straight upstream of themselves and drift it down in front of them maybe two or three times and then take a step and they will go completely if possible go completely across that river over to the other bank Take two steps downstream and walk all the way back across the other way, and uh, I noticed from learning how to do it now is I don't miss an inch of the water, not one inch. So you you really are going to cover almost every single fish, whether you eat your fly or not. I don't know, but the coverage is amazing. Now, so for the for the Polish method,
1: you're looking for relatively shallow water, not terribly.
2: Rapid flows, is that uh, is that the characteristic that you're after? The the rapid flow part not true. They don't fish too deep, usually uh six feet or less. And uh sometimes it'll be, you know, fairly slow. They they actually is not a good method for super slow water. Okay. But fairly slow to very fast it is affected. And um another thing I should mention that makes the polish nipping so important is first of all, they don't use indicators, and I think that comes from the Europeans doing lots of competitions, and uh, indicators are not legal in a competition. In fact, the upcoming competition in Portugal, I need to really have my act together fishing without an indicator because it's not allowed. And uh, that's one of the reasons they use this short line because with the short line, short leader, let's say, they don't miss many strikes because the rod is closer to the flies. We have a question that
1: asks uh, how you would compare the Polish technique with, say, short line or high stick nymphing techniques that are uh, used in the West,
2: at least here in America. It's very similar to our short line techniques. But we tend to always, when we have a short line, we raise our rod up in the air and we kind of dead drift the flies. The Polish, they actually have their rod tip very low to the water. You know, again, it's that short leader, so and they want to have the tip of that rod as close to their flies as possible. But the other thing they do that it took me a while to get this is that they actually pull their flies downstream slightly, whereas we're dead drifting them, trying to bounce them on the bottom. They get their flies to the bottom. They throw it upstream a little bit. When the fly is on the bottom, they start going slightly faster than the current itself. And what I was taught was to pick, you know, a little bubble on the water, maybe a floating leaf or a stick, and just actually make sure that I was gaining ground on that leaf or bubble. And eventually, you know, I'm going to probably pass it because I'm swimming my flies along the bottom. The idea behind this, from the rod tip to my bottom fly, my point fly they call it, it is a very straight line. Uh, my, my leader is stretched out straight so that if I have any fish come in and quickly strike my fly, I feel them. Whereas when you have slack, like we do typically fishing with an indicator, a lot of times fish come up and hit that fly, and we never even know it.
0: Well, it sounds like, Jeff, that, that we, we aren't fishing to fish here. We're fishing areas of the stream, uh, maybe because of the, the water's off color there, like you say, more times than not. Uh, but this isn't sight fishing, right?
2: Not really, but let me tell you a really neat story. Um, The first time I ever fished in Europe, and that's where I met Vladi, my friend from Poland. And uh, he said, you know, I didn't know this guy very well. He just said, go out there and fish this run. It's full of grayling. See how you do. So I went out there, and I I fished away, you know, my usual techniques. You know, I wasn't using an indicator, and I had practiced quite a bit. And uh, after about five minutes, I picked up a grayling. I looked back and kind of smiled at Vladi. He looked at me like, yeah, whatever. Uh, I made a few more casts, caught another one, and I looked back to see him, and he was stomping in the water up behind me because he was so <laughs> disgusted that I had only caught two Grayling. He said, this is one of my best spots, watch this. And he casted, landed a Grayling. He cast again, he landed a Grayling. Then he took a couple steps across, he cast, landed a Grayling, I said, "Well, that's really amazing. He said, you know what I'm doing? I said, no. He said, see that rock just barely under the surface over there? It was pretty off color, but if I looked carefully, I could see this rock. He said, if there's a fish or several fish in this area, where are they going to be? And I said, well, maybe there'll be one above that rock. Maybe there'll be two below that rock. He said, right. He said, well, when your fly's in that area, just for kicks, set the hook and see what happens. So it was kind of like, okay, I'm just going to set the hook when I think my fly's there, just in case something grabs it in a split second that I set the hook. And lo and behold, my first cast, I did exactly that I set the hook and I got a fish and I said, wow. He said, do it again. I threw it up there again. Before I was kind of setting the hook on the fish that I thought might be above the rock. Now I can't see these fish, I'm just assuming. I set the hook there, there was nothing. He said, don't pull your fly out of the water, do it again. I said, what do you mean? He said, make your subtle, subtle set. And If there's nothing there, let it keep going. So I did it again, I did a subtle set there, nothing. When, it, when I thought I was behind the rock, I set the hook again and I got another fish. Kind of like fishing the, you know, the way Darth Vader swings his, uh, his lightsaber. I mean, it was unbelievable. And since I started doing that, I really catch a lot more fish because I'm not missing strikes. We have a question from South Dakota where they've got some
1: uh, pretty fine uh, trout fishing out in the Black Hills. and And they're requesting some specific details about your setup in terms of how many droppers you have, how you're weighting them, how you gauge the, the leader and the tippet. And uh, then we'll also ask a question later about the nymphs you select. But could you just uh, give us some of the technical details of your of your terminal gear? OK.
2: I typically do this with a 5 way rod, nine foot. Uh, a lot of the Europeans prefer a nine and a half or a 10-foot rod. I tried it. I didn't have a lot of success with it. it just, I'm just not comfortable with that rod. So I've stuck with my 9-foot, and now I've gotten to be pretty good with the 9-foot rod. But that's personal preference. Um, typically, when you have a, you know, we as Americans, we set up our fly, fly rod with our fly line, then we put on a butt section of, like, 30-pound test, and then we put on a tapered leader. Well, Vladi grew up where monofilament was very difficult to get. And uh, a lot of times he used just a level leader. And he tried the butt section when I introduced him to it, and he immediately didn't like it. And I saw why right away, because that 30-pound butt section, whether it's maxima or some heavy material, it tends to have a little bit of coil in it. And Vladi immediately pointed out the fact that, OK, when you have that, if a fish takes your fly, you won't feel it until that's straightened out. So immediately I was like, hey, wait a minute. So what I do is I use about a 0x fluorocarbon for a butt section, and I put down, oh, maybe two feet of that. From there, I'll jump to 2x, and I'll put two feet of that. And from there, I'll do 4x and put two to three feet of that, making that my tippet. So I end up with essentially a six to seven foot leader. Sometimes the 4x material might be a little heavy, uh, one thing you always have to keep in mind, the heavier your tippet, the less your fly is going to sink. You know, 4X and 5X may not seem like it's going to make a whole lot of difference in effect of the fly, but I'll tell you what, when you put a nymph on 5X, you will get really good action and catch more fish. And it, of course, that is if you're not breaking them off because you're fishing in a place where it's all big fish like the Box Canyon over in Henry's Fork or Madison or something. But uh, when I use 5X tippet, I change it slightly. I will do a 1X butt section then go to three X, then to five X.
1: Okay, and and then you're sweeping your rod along pretty much parallel
2: to the to the water surface? That's right. Essentially dragging my nymphs downstream. You know, I'll and reach way up way up with my you know, I'm right handed, so I'll flip it up way up high, stretch my arm and then I'll start as soon as I think they hit bottom, I'll start pulling and I can actually feel my flies taking the bottom. And when I feel that then I know, okay, Time for me to speed up a little bit, uh, which will probably keep me from getting hung up, but also will be pulling my flies through the zone a little faster. And I think it, I think it excites fish to see something that's getting away from them. I mean, we know it does. We've all seen fish, you know, when we're stripping in a streamer. Sometimes the faster you pull it away, the, the harder they come on and get it. Okay, and then so the the bottom nymph is the most heavily weighted, or are they all equally weighted? My bottom nymph will never be lighter than the others. There may be times where I'm using two identical nymphs. But oftentimes, most often, I have a heavy fly on the bottom and uh, a lighter fly above. And I usually 20, you know, competition, we have to have them 20 inches apart or 50 centimeters. But if you have them a little closer, like maybe 15 to 18 inches, that is the most effective way.
0: Now, so you usually do a, a two-fly two, uh, rig then? As I, It seems to me I've read in some articles that, that some of these guys are using three or even four flies or something
2: when they're doing these I, techniques. Ninety percent of my fishing is just two flies. And for those of you out there listening, you've got to be careful where you live. I know a lot of places in Canada is a one-fly uh, lot. Uh, there are a lot of states that don't let you use more than two flies. However, Oregon, you know, they allow you to use three flies. In a lot of the European countries, you can use three flies. I played around with it. It was a little bit much for me to handle, you know, where I can't practice it here in Idaho. I think in Idaho it's two flies only. And uh, I can't practice it, so I don't do it in the competition. And uh, yeah, i tell you what, three flies is hard to handle.
1: Well, Jeff, we're going to take a real brief break here, and then we'll come back to more about the Polish nymphing method. When we return, we'll be talking more with Jeff Curry about European fly fishing techniques. Pear Marquette
0: River Lodge, a full-service Orvis endorsed lodge, fly shop and guide service located on the banks of the historic Pear Marquette River in Baldwin, Michigan, providing year-round lodging for the business or pleasure traveler, as well as a full-service fly shop and guided trips for steelhead, salmon or large resident brown trout. For more information, visit us at www pmlodge.com or call 231-745-3972. That's pmlodge.com or call 231-745-3972. We hope to see you soon.
1: You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Jeff Curry about European fly fishing techniques. If you'd like to ask Jeff a question, go to our homepage www.askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link below the description of the show where it asks, click here to ask Jeff your most important question. We'll receive your questions and we'll be answering as many as possible during the show. Uh, Jeff, uh, before we get back to the Polish uh, nymphing techniques, uh, could you give us a little bit of uh of an idea of what it is that uh, that keeps you so busy running around with all your different interests and maybe some of your contact information,
2: well, I live here in Victor, Idaho, but it's easiest to to get a hold of me at the Jack Dennis fly shop where I've worked for twenty years. Uh, I'm in there Thursday through Monday almost every uh every day of the summer in the wintertime of course, I'm out doing sports shows, and if uh an adventure comes my way i usually I usually take advantage of it my my biggest fun right now is chasing exotic freshwater species all over the world.
0: Uh, why don't you give us your website, where people can see some of your artwork and uh, find out about your books and, and your events and so forth?
2: Sure. My website is simple. It's jeffcurrier.com. And Currier is often spelt wrong. It's actually C-U-R-R-I-E-R. And i uh, got a home page there with all kinds of things. You can go see my artwork. Uh, I'm putting up some of my past articles on there, and I'll have more soon. Um, you can see some pictures from my recent trip to Egypt, where we fish for Nile perch. All kinds of cool stuff.
0: Sounds exciting. I know looking at your books is uh, on warm water fishing that we're giving away tonight is very exciting. All the different kinds there. Um, it's uh, it's <laughs> it just shows you how much fishing I have yet to do. <laughs> That's right. What um, we got to. Uh, A question here from Larry Tullis in Ogden, Utah. Now, I know Larry Tullis is a very accomplished fly fisher as well and guide up there on the Green River, I believe. And um, it's kind of a long question here, but I'll, I'll read it off to you, Jeff. I used weight on the bottom of my nymphing rigs. I call bounce nymphing since the 70s, but free weights are illegal during tournaments. So weighted flies are the next best thing to sink and anchor nymphing rigs. Since weighted flies are an integral part of the euro-turning nymph fishing, how do you organize your nymph boxes for weight control? According to weight, by the gram, and what are your favorite patterns that are both weight and attractor imitator?
2: Well, get all that's that? a good, <laughs> good question from an old friend I haven't seen oh, okay. in a long time. But uh, I, I'm like most fishermen. I'm I'm not perfectly organized by any means. Boy, I tell you, I was, I've been organizing all afternoon, getting ready for this trip coming up. And I was going through my nymphs. And I don't weigh them by gram. No, I am not at all. And I know a lot of people do. And I know a lot of the competitive European fishermen do, and maybe I should for that reason, because they are often successful. But I look at the size of my head on the fly, uh, my bead head. You know, I can tell a regular bead from a tungsten bead, because tungsten beads have that little octagon shape. So I, I put all my tungsten beads on one side of my box, and I put all my regular beads, bead nymphs, on the other side. And I just do it, you know, I put the small ones on top, and they get bigger as I go down, and I know they're heavier. And I do have my bottom row of my fly box is what I call bombs. And um, they're big tungsten beads on there. And the nymph is extremely fat, so I know that it has tons of lead under it. The only problem is on those bomb nymphs, I might tell you right now, a lot of times they have a terrible hook gap, but I still use them because they are the bomb, and they they basically bring my smaller flies down to the bottom. You know, a lot of competitions, like Larry mentioned in his email there, you cannot add any weight to your leader or fly. So, your fly has to be tied very heavy if you want to get down to the bottom.
0: Now, that... um he also mentioned this other type of, of fishing uh, using, uh, you know, free weights, which again is getting getting the nymphs way down there. Um, he called it sink and anchor nymphing rigs. Can you kind of talk about the differences between that and Polish nymphing on on the effect when you're fishing?
2: Well, I think that uh, the free weights. I think it's like a sliding, you know, egg sinker type thing that you can put on your leader, which, you know, you can. They're very easy to cast, so you can take a much heavier piece of lead or, you know, some place you can't use lead, but a much heavier weight and still be able to cast it nicely. And um as far as bottom bouncing, I'm not sure exactly what Larry means. I'm gonna guess that perhaps he's putting this this or a heavy weight on the end of his leader and actually keeping his flies above that. So he's got this heavy weight pulling down two flies. From above, it's actually a, a real good way to work around not being able to fish three flies because you can fish two small flies and still get them down there because you have the heavy weight at the end of your leader.
0: Do you think uh, still the the in in the same situation the Polish nymphing is going to be more effective than that that type of rig?
2: You know, I I do I like I like the Polish nymphs. You know, when I got to Poland a few years ago, um, I went into a fly shop with my friend Vladi. And I looked around the fly shop. The dry flies were terrible. I was like Vladdy, I'm fine. I don't need this. I know these are probably your friends. You want me to spend some money here? And he goes, No, no. I want you to see the nymphs. And the guy pulled out this tray of nymphs. And I picked up the first nymph. I mean, they were gorgeous. I just I started picking through them and I started dropping them on the counter. And I saw how heavy they were. It's actually kind of funny. Um, It looked like he had oh maybe 300 flies there. And I said to Vladi, I said, How much are they? And um, Vladi asked the guy. I did the math in my calculator there, and he said that it was about thirty-three cents a piece. And I said, "These are the flies that are going to work best in the competition." He said, "Yeah, they are." And I said, "Well, I think I'll take them all. <laughs> I bought all the nymphs there, and uh, I've taken those nymphs with me all over the world. They are so much better than the nymphs that we typically tie here in the states. They're low. They're very, let's say, you know, thin profiled, which makes them sink well. They're weighted like." none ever I mean just it's unbelievable how they they wrap their lead on there and just it's almost like they wrap on the lead then smash it up so it takes up less space and wrap over it again and then they throw that tungsten head and not to say that heavy nymphs are always the way to go but I'd say that 75 percent of the time the heavier your nymph is the better chance you're getting down the bottom the better chance of getting that fly in front of the fish's face
1: well, is there any formula that you use when you're setting up this tandem rig? Are you using a, a bright color f- fly with a, a dull dropper? or
2: Is there any, any sense to what you select? Absolutely. Um, if I'm fishing a river that I'm not familiar with, which let's say I went over to a river in Eastern Europe and never been on before, my bottom nymph is almost always a pretty good-sized black nymph, maybe a, a stonefly type of nymph, about a size 10, let's say, very heavy. And above that, you know, 20 inches above, I'll put usually a caddis, like a green caddis. They're two things that are found in almost every river around the world, um, and they almost always work. Now, if I if I stick a fish on that bottom fly right away, and then I stick another one, and I catch three or four fish on that black fly, Then I may change my top fly. Vice versa, if I catch a couple fish on the caddis and the black fly is not doing anything, I might reach into my box and get a great big caddis and put it on the bottom and see if I can start catching fish with that too. Um, The idea is once you're into your fishing well underway is to have a setup where both your nymphs will catch fish. And sometimes it means having both of the same nymphs on there.
1: Uh, We do have uh, a question here referring to I guess with the Polish nymphing method, there's very little fly line actually out of the the rod tip. But can you use a furled leader as opposed to monofilament or that kind of thing? Are there any advantages
2: or disadvantages? I've never tried the furled leader system, but I don't see why you couldn't use it. Um, I don't know if you can get a, you know, the fluorocarbon scene in there into the furled leader. And I do like the fluorocarbon because it's denser than water and it does sink help sink the them, particularly small ones real well. Um what you one thing you find with me is I'm very old fashioned. A lot of new stuff comes out. I see it all the time because I'm, you know, ordering for the shop but I'm also very stubborn and if I have something that works I'll never change it. Okay. But Jeff,
0: these um uh, getting back to the um the flies that you were were looking at, are they when, when we're talking about things that we know well here in the States, could, could you compare them, their design, to, to something similar here? I mean, is it is it a typical caddis, you know, pattern, only just heavily weighted? Or what what is, you know, when you look at them, what's different?
2: Their what we're caddis, they usually tie them on a curved hook. They usually have a, um, you know, some type of material on the back. So it's almost something that we would put on the back of a scud. And it's wound on there very, very tightly. They also weave. They do a lot of weaving of their flies. And uh, so you have these beautiful woven caddis or beautiful woven mayfly nymphs, whereas we tend to just take dubbing, smear it on there, and and get some brass wire and wrap over the top and put a a wing case on it. And uh, our flies are nice, too, but I think when they weave them together like that, I think that makes the fly more compact. And then once again, it usually penetrates through the water a little better.
1: Do they use sizes similar? I believe I've seen at least a couple references where they're using like uh, size
2: 6 and size 8 hooks for their nymph patterns. I've seen some big ones like that. But uh, the most common are just like around here. They're, they're nymphs 12 to 16 are, are most commonly used. Do they
1: use any of the similar patterns like the sparkle caddis and that sort of thing? Um, you mean the dry flies? Well, I was just, no, I'm thinking of the
2: uh sparkle pupa and that kind of thing. Oh yeah, the La Fontaine merger. No, right, they right. they they're starting to. Um these guys you know, Vladi here he is, the guy that won the, the gold medal in Finland in nineteen ninety two I think it was, did it entirely nymphing and then uh you know, as I get to be friends with and he's come and spent quite a bit of time with me here in the States, here's a guy that won the gold medal but he was not a very good dry fly fisherman. In fact, I was really surprised how little experience he had with dry flies. And I think because they they typically do ninety nine percent of their fishing there nymphing or, or did, that has changed, that uh they didn't have a whole bunch of guys out there designing fancy dry flies, particularly emerger patterns. But yeah, the sparkle Caddis does work over there. I've brought it over, and now they are starting to fish a lot more emergers.
0: Are they fishing, Jeff, you know, we're we're so focused here on matching the hatch. Are are they doing the same thing there, matching the hatch, or are they doing more
2: of an, a, a tractor approach? They usually match the hatch. Um, I've not had a whole lot of success throwing Chernobyls over there. Uh, Royal Wolf will work, but we know that looks like so many different things. But they they tend to tie stuff, you know, they actually have a PMB hatch over there, and they tie flies that look very much like PMDs They use a lot more CDC than we do, and they've been using it for a long time. And some of Vladi's simple CDC dry flies that he's uh, starting to use now that he's a lot more into dry fly fishing than he ever was are deadly. In fact, I was using them yesterday over in the South Fork. And it's funny, I went through some of my favorite bread and butter flies, my thoraxes, my... You know, cripples and my sparkle duns. And, you know, I was picking up a few fish and I got into this one stubborn brown and I said, ah, oh, there's a flottie fly. I'll try it for good luck. First cast, wham, got him. And then I stuck with the fly and just proceeded to, to beat up some fish on it.
1: Uh, it sounds, uh, sounds good to me to hear anybody talking about fish in the South Fork. Um, we've had several questions uh, that bring us along to the Spanish nymphing technique, but before we get there, I had one other that I wanted to ask about the the so-called Czech or Polish technique. And I believe I've read where at the end of your drift you give the fly a little bit of extra action with just a little flick of your wrist that uh, may turn on that last little instinct with the fish.
2: Is that uh, that something you do regularly? It is, but that flick of the wrist is really more in case a fish grabs it at the end of my drift. One thing that I have found and I watch these guys do is they, they do really rely heavily on the swing. Let's say Bloody threw it upstream. He made a couple of his flicks to the wrist to set the hook, you know, just minor sets just in case there was a fish there, but there wasn't, so he let it keep going. When it gets down to the bottom, he reaches his arm way out, rod tip down to water, and slowly brings it in parallel to him and the shore, and as the fly swings, He uh, expects fish to get fairly excited, and right at the end, he does do another one of his hook sets, just in case. Because we all know that when your fly is directly downstream and your rod's facing that way, you don't have a lot of shock absorption in the tip of your rod. So a lot of these fish kind of, they grab it real quick, and it tears out of their mouth, or they just don't get hooked good. But he does that little flick, and I do that little flick, and it's pretty effective.
0: Well, it sounds like, Jeff, when we, from what what I've learned here, to just kind of summarize, uh... One, we're we're pulling the the fly downstream, which is kind of an unnatural thing for us Western fly fishers out here to do, because we're used to that natural drift uh, approach. Um, And then uh, doing those intuitive sets, I I guess you describe them as uh, even when you're not sure you have something on. And uh, I've noticed that fishing with other fishermen that that are, are better than I on the river it seems that 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 is the the deciding factor it seems like they they are getting more hookups because of that so but when we talk about um this technique there's you know those are all upsides to getting more fish are, are there any downsides to using uh, the polish
2: technique absolutely um it should be an interesting tournament coming up in portugal the world championships because spain portugal that part of europe tends to have very clear water very spooky fish, and uh, the water typically is uh, moving a little slower, at least what I saw in Spain, and I think it's going to be similar in Portugal. Well, walking right up on top of a very spooky fish with a two inches of fly line or six to six inches of fly line and th- three feet max and plopping very heavy flies into the water is not good for spooky fish. And um, I don't use it everywhere around here, that's for sure. I wouldn't walk over to the Henry's Fork and and plan on doing it. Box Canyon, yes, but some of the lower stretches, no. So all it is, it's a technique that you have to have in your quiver so that when you do need to use it, you do. But uh, there are times when you don't. Okay. Let's uh, take just a brief uh,
1: break here. When we return, we'll be uh, talking with Jeff Courier, and we'll be directing questions regarding the Spanish nymphing techniques.
0: At the recent FFF Conclave, the majority of professional fly tires were by far using the right, that's R-I-T-E, bobbin, the right bobbin. Made in America, in fact, Montana-made by Mirco Products, four models are available to produce all sizes of flies and to handle all types of fly tying materials. Every right bobbin features a unique micro-adjustable tension setting. Learn more about this exceptional device by calling Mirko Products direct at 406-328-6372. That's 406-328-6372. Or email rightbobbins at AOL.com. That's R-I-T-E bobbins at AOL.com. And tell them you heard about it and ask about Fly Fishing Internet Radio.
1: Well, you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Jeff Courier about European fly fishing techniques. If you'd like to ask Jeff a question, go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com. Click uh, where it says uh, click here to ask Jeff your most important question. We'll be answering as many as we can uh, as we uh, get to them. Uh, Jeff, what can you tell us in terms of details about setting up the, for the Spanish nymphing technique?
2: Okay, well... This is a long leader, so you better have a, a pretty good supply of leader material. And fluorocarbon, unfortunately, is expensive, but that's what we like to use again because, once again, it, it helps penetrate those smaller flies. First of all, a long leader. Um, I think 18 feet would be about as short as a Spanish nymphing rig would be. And the reason wow. they have to have such long leaders is because the fish over there are incredibly Incredibly spooky. The span when the competition was in Spain. If you caught one fish in your three-hour session, you were probably going to be in the top five out of 25 anglers. That's how spooky the fish were. Just unbelievable. The way I set it up, and this, by the way, I should add in here, I did not do a lot of Spanish nymphing. I definitely did not win in Spain by by Spanish nymphing. I got to see it done. I got to play around when we were practicing beforehand, but uh, the streams that were in the in the competition itself were very small, and you can't imagine trying to cast an 18-foot leader with two, maybe even three nymphs on it with a bunch of brush around you. You just wouldn't do it. But it's a long leader. I typically would set it up, oh, instead of using OX, you might have to use a heavier material. You might have to get into your maxima maybe put on some 20-pound and uh, taper it down to, oh, usually over there, you're going to be talking 5X, because if you're using the Spanish-style nymph and you're fishing for spooky fish, then they're going to need a light tippet. So I might put four pieces. I don't go by a formula. You know, I don't worry about, you know, having two feet of 20 pounds and, you know, eight inches of 15 and going down like that. I rely on my nymphs themselves to turn over that leader. Uh, Usually when you have weight on the end, if your timing is good in your cast, it'll roll out there just fine. Um, Oh, very important, my goodness. One thing, though, what makes it Spanish nymphing is they don't use an indicator, not like we do. There's no yarn, there's no big fly on there with a nymph dragging below it. But they do, in a sense, have an indicator right in the middle of their leader. Actually, usually a little closer to the rod tip. They put a brightly colored piece of monofilament. Now, if you went to Kmart or one of the Stores that sell spin line, you could probably find yourself some bright yellow spin line. I don't know why people use it, but the Spanish sure love using it in their Spanish leader, Spanish nymph leader, and they'll put about a foot of it, and that will always be right on the cutting edge of the water, and they'll watch and see what that does.
0: In yeah. essence, they do have a uh, indicator.
2: <laughs> yeah, but it's legal, I guess, because it's monofilament. It's, it's like part of the case line. Case. Yeah, yeah. So.
0: Now. Um, uh, since we're talking about that leader and, and the hook, the, the fly setup and so forth too, we just got in um, on the internet a, a question from Joe Drab in Rapid City, South Dakota, and he says, um, he, he wants to know, when you tie the droppers on, are you tying to the uh, top fly or are you tying to something else? How do you actually, you know, there's a lot of controversy. Do you tie to the, the bend in the hook? Do you tie to the eye? What? How do you actually tie them on?
2: Great question. Great um... question. I always I, I put it this way I never tie off the back of the hook anymore. I did it for years and I just don't like that because I feel like sometimes I miss strikes uh when a fish is eating that upper fly because of the you know the way the tippet is tied on there. So I always have a tag end off my tippet section put it like this. Let's say I'm going to I'm fishing a 4X leader. That's going to be my tippet size. If I pull a leader out of a package, let's say, and I want to fish two dry flies, let's say I bought a 9-foot 4X leader, and I want to fish a great big hopper at the end of my leader, my point fly, but because I'm on the south fork and because fish are quite often eating PMDs and they're a little bit spooked by the big fly, I want to have a PMD on there too. So I actually take that brand new leader and I go up the leader about 25 inches where there's still pretty good taper there, it's still pretty light material, and I chop it right there. And I tie together with either a surgeon's or a blood knot that tippet back on there. But the the end coming from the top, coming from the top of my standing line on my leader, I make long. And I know a lot of people are very familiar with this. You know, I'll probably leave it six inches long. And I'll cut. I'll leave that hanging, and I'll tie my fly onto that. But before I do that, I actually put a half hitch with that six inches of tippet around the standing line of the tippet side now and snug mm-hmm. it up against the knot itself. And what that does is it makes it stick out a little more at an angle, so when you start casting, it's less likely to wrap, you know, spin around the standing line of your tippet. I hope that made sense to everybody. Yeah,
1: So, so your tippet that leads to your dropper fly is sort of at a right angle to your
2: leader. That's right, and it keeps things from tangling up. Now, I don't always do it this way, though. That's that's typically the way I'll start out, and um, it works very well. But a little trick when you're nymphing, and this is illegal in the competitions, but I learned it um, from Vladi. He just showed me, he said one of those deals where I wish we could do it this way because watch this. What he often does he, does, he sets up his droppers way ahead of time. He might set up five of them and stick them in his hat, so he's basically got – fly that he wants to try at some point attached to six inches of fluorocarbon tippet and at the end of this fluorocarbon tippet he has a perfection loop and what he does is let's say he wants to put a a different fly on his as a dropper he just literally loops it around the leader you know he, he puts that tippet and fly up to the edge of the leader and he drops the fly through the loop of the perfection loop and snugs it up tight above the knot of your tippet, okay? So now you have this fly up there, and what he likes about it and what makes it deadly is it's, it's very loose, and it actually spins around the standing line of your leader, and uh, it gets a lot better action, whereas a lot of times when we, when we tie it off to our tag end of our knot, It's a little bit rigid, and sure, the rigidity helps keep it from tangling up, but also sometimes it makes it look a little unnatural, whereas this little trick that Vladi taught me, boy, it's just deadly. It tangles more, but all I have to do is cut the tangled mess off, reach into my hat, and loop another one around there. Is there
1: any difference in the flies that you're using uh, for
2: the, the long leader technique with the Spanish method? Usually, uh, I'm using more mayfly imitations. A lot of times, the in Spain, it was a, a mayfly contest for the most part. Sometimes we used caddis, but a lot of times it was PMDs, parachute atoms, and match the hatch for this or that. And uh, typically, smaller nymphs, a lot of times you'll be fishing, say, a, a size 14 pheasant tail, and right above that, 20 inches above, you have a size 18 pheasant tail, and I think that... It, has a lot to do with uh, the long leader, too, because now they're getting down to 5x at the end. You can have a pretty long piece and really get good action with those smaller flies.
0: Now, the uh, what about the, the actual techniques and strategies you would use on the river with, with that technique, and how does it differ from the Polish?
2: Well, first of all, the rod tip is high up. And uh, again, the Europeans, particularly the Spanish, they like the longer rods. You know, a lot of times you'll see these guys doing this method with a ten foot long rod and it does make a little more sense and uh... when i do it i do i do sometimes wish i had a few extra inches on my nine foot rod because then you can almost reach over some very fast current perhaps to get to this little slack water spot on the bank on the other side and um, so you can keep your line from being affected by that fast current once they get the fly out there just like uh the Polish niving, they want to get it down deep first, but then they just guide it with their rod tip. And a lot of times they'll they'll drag it a little bit, but really they're going for a dead drift. They're just kind of following with the rod tip, and a lot of times they will walk downstream, kind of hopping along to try and get as long a drift as possible. So
0: it's, could you say that the Spanish is more of a a stealthy type approach as opposed to the Polish?
2: Absolutely. You could take Spanish nymphing to any river in the world and uh, have a fair chance of catching fish, because not only will can you do this and catch the dumb ones or the ones that, let's say, are, are more protected by off-color water or very fast water, but you could turn around you could go, uh, God forbid, I would never do it, but uh, you could go nymph the ranch in the Henry's Fork and probably, probably catch a fish or two doing the Spanish nymphing method. You should never nymph on the ranch, by the way. Well, and why is that? <laughs> <laughs> it is one of our best dry fly rivers in the world. Oh, it's...
0: It's just kind of like a uh, an unwritten sin there,
2: huh? <laughs> yeah, I think a little bit.
0: A, a, a commandment, I should say. Thou shalt not <laughs> nymph in the
1: ranch. <laughs> yeah absolutely. Um, Jeff, I've got a couple of kind of technical questions, I guess, that have uh, have come in. One is uh, I'm struggling with the thought of how to get a real low profile in a heavily weighted nymph, and you alluded to. Uh, how tight they they wrap but i i still when i tie myself i have a real trouble ending up with low profile
2: nymphs uh, are there any tricks to doing that tie you know i i am a terrible tire and i don't if there is i don't know them. there are certain flies i buy and uh small nymphs like that a lot of times i will when i see vladi or if i'm in europe and i have an opportunity to buy them I, I buy them i think i think it's the tungsten head as much as anything and then fishing it on light tippet more than the nymph itself you know we have a tendency because in the rocky mountains particular, we have big fish if you go out there and in nymph you know a size 18 nymph you're going to have to do it on 4x or you're going to get broke off every time over there their fish are typically smaller so they can break down to a 6X. And I've even seen Vladi using 7X tippet with size 18 nymphs. And it gets down there big time and uh, you know pulling in those little grayling.
1: Well, then the other question relates to Roger and I have had the occasion to see uh, some videos on fly fishing waters in Portugal. And we're led to understand that those may be waters that are used for the World uh, Championship venues. And these waters are very shallow. There's all kinds of stuff hanging over them. And I'm wondering how you're
2: working an 18-foot leader in water like that. Well, I can tell you I won't be, that's for sure. And I don't think on those rivers those guys are doing that. Um, where we learned that technique, and we had, a by the way, we had a very good guide uh, in Spain. His name was Iator. He taught us that method, but it was funny. You know, here we are, we're practicing for this competition, and he was taking us to all these good-sized rivers. In fact, one of my favorites was very similar to the Madison, so it was a great place to do that. And I already mentioned earlier that it's funny. You know, then competition came. I never did the Spanish nibbing once. I just kind of went down to some typical American-slash-French techniques and fished a short leader with uh, a dry fly and a dropper. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, maybe that you kind of answered, uh, and I think you know this person too, uh, Jaco in Portugal.
2: I don't know him. I, I, that's interesting.
0: Well, he's—I um, think he's having something to do with setting up the, the world championships over there, or something. So, uh, in fact, he was the one that sent us the videos. But he—he he did ask a question, and he says, "Hello, I'm from Portugal. What technique are you going to use in, in Portugal?" So he's—he's one you basically gave him your answer, I think, right there.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I can give a little more on it. You know, I've never been to Portugal. I don't know for sure what the rivers are going to be like, and I have not seen this video yet. I I actually got a video from one of our teammates that I have not watched yet. I got it two days ago, and I'm probably going to watch it tonight before bed because it's time to really start gearing up. But if it's like Spain, I am going to be crawling on my hands and knees and I don't know if I should give away my tips here. But, well, <laughs> That's up to <laughs> so you, Those Jeff. guys to be listening. <laughs> I'm going to be crawling on my hands and knees with a very short leader, probably a seven and a half foot for like 5X leader, fishing a dry fly with a dropper. And my, my nymph will be, it'll probably be a size 18 pheasant tail or something of that sort. And my dry fly will be, you know, when I get over there, I, I don't have any time to practice on this. It's unfortunate. The team's going to go over and practice. I literally get off the plane in Portugal on the tenth. we have a parade, and we start the competition on the eleventh so they're gonna to have to clue me in, but you know I'll use the dry fly they say to do, and I'm just gonna be making sure I hit every inch of that creek, and uh the short lead is gonna keep me out of the bushes and the low profile you know I'll be very close to the fish, the low profile will hopefully make it so that i'm I'm okay not scaring fish. You know I wanna add one thing actually there what people don't realize particularly us as americans you know when you're in this competition you have to land the fish you put them in the net You safely bring the fish over to your judge everybody has a judge and they measure the fish it's all done right in right in the water and then the fish takes off Um, have you ever tried to with a barbless hook keep an eight inch fish on the end of your line it's not easy very very difficult and tons of fish are hooked and lost in this competition and uh... If Portugal is like Spain where one fish might be the only one you see and hook during your your three-hour session, you don't want to lose them. And uh, that's why I like crawling on my hands and knees and fishing very short. I literally, it's almost like playing racquetball. If an 8-inch fish grabs my fly, I don't fight him. I I just pull him right to the net in one quick move. And a lot of times those fish are flopping around my net and my fly is long out of him.
0: Huh. Interesting. Yeah, because the, the, the small fish do flop around a lot more, and you don't have that heavy weight on your line keeping it taut. So uh, I, I understand totally. Uh, you just don't want to set that hook too hard either. <laughs> if
2: you're... A lot of heartbreakers, I tell you. <laughs> you lose them right by the net, and you're just, oh, terrible.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, we watched, uh, Don and I covered the fly fishing championship here in Boulder on the front range in Colorado, and uh, we we watched a lot of that kinds of activity. We watched uh, uh, one of the the British fly fishers literally walk across the stream up to his neck in water. I mean, his his waders were full just to get that fish over to that judge. So uh, they did anything and everything to get that fish (laughs) over to that judge. It was uh, pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, um, we're coming up here to uh, another break here. And um, when we return, we'll, uh, we'll answer more of your questions about European techniques, I see we've got a few coming in here on the internet, so we'll try to get those answered as well. Uh, So take it from here, Don.
1: Royal Gorge Anglers is a full-service fly shop on the Arkansas River in Canyon City, Colorado. They provide both walk-wade and float fly fishing guide service on the Arkansas and South Platte Rivers, as well as several private high country ranches. Their specialty is fly fishing education, and they work to assure that everyone making a trip becomes a better fly fisher. For the best service and the most fun in the Southern Rockies, visit the folks at Royal Gorge Anglers, the gateway to Southern Colorado, conveniently located on US Highway 50, only 45 minutes from Colorado Springs. For more information, visit their website at www.royalgorgeanglers.com, or call 888. Nine nine four six seven four three. That's RoyalGorgeAnglers.com and eight 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 nine nine four six seven four three.
0: Well, you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Jeff Courier about European fly fishing techniques. If you'd like to ask Jeff a question, just go to our homepage at www.AskAboutFlyFishing.com and click on the link below the description of the show that says "Click here to ask Jeff your most important question." We'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them live on the show as we can.
1: Jeff, uh, I've got a couple questions here that uh, refer back, I would say, to both nymphing techniques. Uh, The first is, do these techniques uh, work on warm water species? You've talked about trout
2: and grayling. Well, I haven't done a lot of nymphing for warm water species, but what little I have, I can tell you, I, I found it to be deadly on smallmouth bass. When you got a riffle, let's say, you're uh, the place I actually did it was on the John Day a few years ago. It was, uh, you know, these fish sometimes act like trout when they're in moving water, and it was deadly. They were fishing great big stone flying They just hammered them. The
1: John Day offers some pretty special fishing on some occasions, uh, that's for sure.
2: Um, Another thing is a lot of your warm water species aren't quite as spooky as trout, and you can walk right up on them like that sometimes.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and then another question, the British seem to chase a variety of species that we're kind of unfamiliar with. Some of them are rough species and uh, some of them, it sounds like, are very tiny fish that they use incredibly long rods for. Would
2: those be uh, uh, worth pursuing with these techniques? Yes, absolutely. You know, over there in England they got the dace and the rod and the roach and the chub and the list goes on. And uh, a lot of those fish have very small mouths, and they eat some of the smallest nymphs, you know, little grubs and, you know, midge pupa-type stuff. And uh, this type of nymphing is very, very effective. Once again, you know, using the very heavy Polish nymphs, you can fish a a very small nymph and still get it down there to where these fish live.
0: Well, Jeff, one of the questions came in on the Internet since we started the show is from Danny in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And he says, uh, if there's one American... One thing American fly fishermen could learn from the European fly fishermen, what would that be?
2: I would have to say the stealth part. You know, with the exception of Polish nymphing, almost every situation over there in Europe requires getting on your hands and knees to catch a, a small fish. You know, I think the biggest, the biggest trout I ever catch over there is like every trip I might get a 16-inch brown, But realistically, 99% of them are in that 12 inches or less and probably 10 inches or less. And I think smaller fish are often a little more spooky because there's a lot more things that can eat them. So I think uh, just the whole stealth pursuing. And I do it around here more than I ever did. I mean, I always went out to Flat Creek or our Spring Creeks here in the valley and crawled on my hands and knees. But, you know, even on the South Fork, sometimes, I might go sneaking up a high bank and staying incredibly low and catching. You know, instead of saying, okay, there's four fish rising there, I'm going to go down and catch one of them, I say, I want all four of those fish. And that's the way the Europeans think, whereas we figure we'll go down, we'll get one of these four, we'll go to the next bend, there'll be four more rising, we'll get one of those four, we'll go to the next bend and catch one of those four. These guys, they don't have that opportunity, so every time they see a rise, they go for it.
0: Are you saying we're a bit spoiled over here, Jeff?
2: I know I am up here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you are in a pretty country and a country that's full of fish up there, that's for sure. Yep. Well, Don, why don't we move on and talk uh, about the English lake techniques?
1: Here. Yeah, go ahead.
0: Well, how do they how do they fish differently than we would fish a lake here? I know this morning, in fact, Jeff, you were out trying and practicing some of these techniques. Why don't we just start from scratch and uh, and tell us how the English approach a, a lake?
2: This will be good because maybe I can teach myself something because this morning was <laughs> <is> pretty tough. <laughs> Well, the first thing, I couldn't believe it. I I got to go to England. The competition was there five or six years ago, and uh, it was really spectacular. Um, Typically, Americans fish a lake, most Americans. I will say that the people from Washington and Oregon, they are phenomenal at fishing nymphs and karanamids on lakes, and I've learned a lot from some of my Oregon friends. But typically, Rocky Mountain, lake fishermen. We go out there and we put on two woolly buggers or a woolly bugger and some sort of streamer. On a fast sinking line we chuck it out there and we start stripping. And we typically, you know, because we're doing streamers, we fish a very short leader. I know I often would cut my leader down to six feet long, maybe even four feet long, and just start dredging and stripping as fast as I could. Well, thank goodness we had a host slash guide over there in England because he looked at that rig and he said, okay, you can try it. And after You know, he watched us not catch a fish while he caught about 10. Immediately we said, okay, it's time to go to school. Hmm. They use, first of all, very, very long leaders. And it makes total sense because you're talking a lake. A lot of times the water is still. The visibility in in the water in a lake is often very, very clear. So the long leader immediately gets your fly line as far away from those flies as possible. What's an average leader? 20 18 to 24 feet. Let's say that. Wow. And, and to make it sound even worse, it's almost always level. These guys will take maybe four x fluorocarbon and go right from their fly line all the way out there and throw three flies.
0: So are you are you talking there then a um, you know a, a dry fly indicator and a couple of droppers or what kind of rig no. do they have at the end? there?
2: Typically what they will do will be three, let's say they're going to be chironomid fishing. So usually they will put three chironomids on there. Maybe the, the, the one at the point, which is the bottom fly, the last fly, will be their biggest one. Because by having the heavier weight at the end of your leader makes it so that this 20-foot level leader actually casts quite well. Um, you'd be surprised how easy it is. Even with the wind blowing behind you, it's, it's not too hard to throw. Then five to six feet up from that, they might put on a smaller chironomid, maybe a different color, let's say olive. And then their top fly, which is actually very close to the fly line, because in a sense, it it is almost an indicator for them when they get the fly next to the side of the boat, because a lot of times they get strikes as they're lifting the rod tip up. They call it the hang. And uh, they'll strip these flies all the way in. They'll see their top fly getting near the tip of the rod and they'll slowly lift, and they'll just kind of keep an eye if that fly makes a, you know, sudden movement. But it's not a dry fly indicator. Um, That's a chronomid situation. Uh, I've had a couple of my English friends over here. We went up to Hebgen Lake, and uh, up there we typically fish small, you know, little woolly bugger, maybe a green woolly bugger to imitate a damselfly or a damselfly nymph itself. Then up the leader I might put a chronomid, and then I might put a calabatus nymph. And... um, so they mix it up to to what's happening and just like me, if all of a sudden two fish eat my calabatus nymph, I might cut one of my other nymphs off and make it a calabatus nymph, and then if I'm starting to get almost all my hits on those two, you know i'll I'll do both calabatus or both dams or whatever's working best
1: now when you're in competitions, you're wading
2: the lakes. is that correct? Not always um we learned in England what they call lock style fishing, and I think in England we had two river beats and three lake beats. And I remember dreading that. I was, oh, geez, I don't even know if I should bother going to England. I'll just do terrible. But uh, our friend there, boy, he really got me going. He got all of us going on that coronamid fishing. We ended up doing really good over there in that. But um, lock style fishing is actually in the boat. One angler's in the front, one in the back. There's a guy rowing a boat. This is a rowboat, you know, 12 foot long, 15 foot long boat max. He's the judge. You're not allowed to cast, you know, past the oar into your opponent's territory. He throws a drogue or a windsock out the side of the boat, and as the wind is pushing you along, you're going fairly slowly, and your backs are always to the wind with this drogue. The first thing I did when I got home from England is I I ordered myself a drogue, and I used my drogue today. I just love the thing. I don't mind fishing lakes when it's windy. In fact, I prefer a little wind now. But anyway, we both cast out and retrieved in, and, and... Went head to head that way. One of the beats was on shore, and um, most of the time when they have two lake beats, one will be in a boat, and one on shore. But this year in Portugal, it just happens to be—I think—we're on shore for both of them.
0: Now, when when you talk about your retrieves, are there different types of retrieves you use with these setups you talk about?
2: Yeah, if I'm fishing, if I'm imitating small fish and leeches, then I usually do a strip, you know. And if I'm doing small fish, I will, I will, you know do six to eight-inch long strips. One thing the English do, if they're doing streamers, though, they have a system of, say, six casts. So they do one cast with the six-inch strips. Then they do one cast with, you know, a a foot-and-a-half long strips. Then they do a cast that's short and very fast. And basically what I'm saying is they never do the same cast twice until they get consistent results on it. And that's something that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, Think about it. When you're lake fishing, a lot of times we find ourselves daydreaming. We're just casting and stripping, casting and stripping. There's no real method to our madness. We're catching that occasional fish. We're satisfied. The English want to find out exactly what, what technique it is that they're eating uh, that's making them eat and narrow it down to three, tri- three of these strips and then maybe even get it down to one and catch a fish every cast. And they'll do the same, whether it's nymphs um, or streamers or leech patterns.
0: Kind of like the old saying of you know, uh, continuing to do the, the same old thing and, and expecting different results. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not going to work that way. You have to change change something to to get uh, to get different results. What about the chronomid
2: um, retrieve or something like that? Very very slow. You can't uh, you can't do it slow enough most of the time. And uh, even today, that's how I caught. By the way, we got one fish today. We fished Ashton Reservoir which is uh... in ashton idaho it's uh, the henry's fort dumps into it and i don't know one person all my friends or anybody that has ever fished it and uh... usually that means it's lousy fishing so i figured what what a better thing today to do if i'm going to practice for portugal than to go over there and fish a lousy lake and see if i can't catch a fish and uh... i got one today on a on a coronament, you know a pretty nice rainbow too so there are some fish in there but uh... I started out stripping you know or doing the hand over hand retrieve they call it uh too fast, and I knew it you know I was drifting towards my flies and I felt like I had to- to keep them moving towards me when realistically the chironomids are usually laying out there they they have a a real wiggle about them, but they don't cover ground very fast so your your hand over hand retrieve has to be very very slow well in the in the lakes
1: and uh, Europe, or specifically I guess in England, do they use any of the devices that we use, like a pontoon boat or or float tubes
2: I'm sure they do. I have never seen it in the lake fishing i have done One thing we have not mentioned tonight, and um, it probably should fishing in Europe is not always easy it's uh there are public waters, but if you're serious angry, you probably don't want to spend too much time fly fishing on them you end up 90% of the time on private water, whether it's a river or a lake. Even the lakes are often private. And most of those private lakes, and all the ones that I have fished, included in your day on the lake is a boat. And they're usually, it's usually really classy little old wooden rowboats. I know they were in England and France. And uh, sometimes they come with a guide. Usually they don't. I actually like it better when they don't because it's fun to go out and kind of explore the lake. But uh, I've never seen anybody in a tube or a pontoon boat.
1: Well, it's interesting that you would, would raise that point, because we have a, uh, a question submitted by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Bill Jones over in Baghdad. He's the director of the Baghdad School of Fly Fishing, one of our, our dedicated audience. But uh, he uh, uh, welcomes you, and, and uh, uh, he wonders, do you know uh, some organization or point of contact that one can access to understand who might have rights to water that a person would like to fish in Europe, especially in, say, Germany or France?
2: Uh, Germany, I don't, because I've never been there. France, boy, see, when I'm over there in these tournaments, everything is set up for me, so I've never had to do the dirty work. And I can tell you right now, um, the language barrier in France, for me, that, that pretty much would sum it up that I would have some serious trouble. And in Eastern Bloc countries, forget it. I watched Vladi struggle to get us, you know, permission to fish on some water in Slovakia, and Vladi speaks fluent Slovakian. Um, so it, it is very difficult. All I can say is fly shops are now popular in Europe. You go into fly shops, talk to them, um, Break out the money. Europe is expensive. I hate to say it, but, you know, spend some money in the shop and, and make them aware that you want to spend a little money to go fishing on uh, some, some quality water. And, you know, money talks. You know, I travel all over the world, and when I get in a jam, a lot of times I have to open my pockets up. But as a die-hard angler, I travel that far. I, I really want to get on the water. And courier will pay to play. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, I actually, uh, when I got this question, I I jumped on the internet real quick. There was one site that might be helpful to Bill. It's dmoz.org. And you could search international fly fishing, and you may find some references. Uh, The Federation of Fly Fishers website might also be helpful, since they're an international organization.
0: Well, I think, uh, as you you said it, Jeff, um, The local shops are always, no matter where you are in the world, the best source of information. uh, They know the flies, they know the water, uh, they have the connections, and what better place to go, I think, and and give them the support. Now, you said it's expensive in Europe. I'd expect that, I think, in England and France and so forth. But even in the Eastern Bloc countries, it's expensive for fishing. uh, I've been told it's it's relatively inexpensive to travel in, in those countries.
2: Well, get over there quick, because it's changing fast. Um, I think my first trip to Europe, or to Poland, was 1998. And um, it was so cheap, I couldn't believe it. I told you about how I bought all those nibs for 33 cents a piece. Well, my next trip back to Poland was, I think, year 2000. I went back over to Siewlady. And uh, things had already changed. And uh, I was back over there a couple times in 2004, and... Now it's not cheap anymore, not in Poland anyway. Slovakia is still fairly inexpensive, but still the fishing, I remember paying, Lottie and I did some fishing in Slovakia just for fun. It was one of the few times I fished in Europe just for pleasure. And I remember we spent some money to get on water. You know, you've got to buy a license for almost every single river that you fish. So if you want to fish three or four rivers during the week, you know, you don't want to be locked to one river. That could be $30 times five or however many times you want to do it, or more. I think uh, there were a couple rivers in Slovakia. They were gems, by the way, the River Vach. But I want to say that we paid, you know, 90 or or $100 for a, a week's pass. A week?
0: Oh, that, that's not too bad. It's not quite as expensive as golfing yet, right?
2: No, don't <laughs> say
0: 90 bucks for a day, right? That's right. Yeah, there was uh, one of our listeners... Um, uh, in Ireland, uh, wrote us, and he's been uh, kind of relaying his experiences on, on fly fishing. He's trying to hook his first Atlantic salmon, and I can't remember right off the top of my head what the um, river he was fishing, but evidently it's a real prominent, well-known river for Atlantic salmon. But uh, basically, it was costing him, I think, about 25 to $45 a day or something like that to fish, and uh, it got more expensive the further up the river you got. I guess where the fishing got better, you paid more. But that's certainly something that in the United States and Canada we're not used to at all. Um, so I guess I guess you better bring your, your Visa and MasterCard,
2: right? I think you better. Uh, in a lot of those little countries like Slovakia, I think even better you bring cash. <laughs> bring cash. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember my credit card doing too well in the sticks there.
0: Well, Jeff, um, one one other closing question maybe on the English Lake came in from Maury Bransford up in Anchorage, Alaska. And he says... Is there just one thing about English lake fishing that, that you should apply to your fishing? What would it be? What's your takeaway from what you learned in England?
2: Well, I'm going to throw two things at him there. First of all, that long leader has really been good for me. And um, I outfished my pal today. He had a, a, a typical American leader. I think he had about a 9-foot leader, and I had the 20-foot leader. And um, the other thing is changing that retrieve. You know, this is, you know, Fish react differently to different movement, you know, and in different days, too. You know, it's a lot of weather-dependent stuff or what the temperature of the water is. And uh, changing that strip every single cast. Build a formula. I know I have one now. And uh, when you narrow it down to what they're into into chasing and you're catching fish, do that one every time. Uh, But you've got to narrow it down to what what they're into. Well, I've got a couple questions that
1: relate to international competitions. Uh, One is uh, actually from probably someone you know, let me see if I'm going to find him real quick, in Omaha, he wonders if you could sort of describe the process that one goes through in order to attain the level of international competition that you've reached.
2: Well, uh, how did I get on the team essentially? Yep. Yep. Well, in 1990, 7 i believe the world competition was held in Jackson Wyoming and i didn't i'll be honest with you i had no idea there was such an event i didn't know there was a world championships of fly fishing so i was very inquisitive right away i'm like really you know what are we going to have a team and uh, i said oh yeah we always have a team and um it was a team that basically the anglers all paid their way out of their own pocket to go to this thing and I got to see how the whole thing operated, and let's say that the American team was basically a gentleman's team. It was uh, five guys. It's a five-man team that could afford to do this, and not necessarily the best fishermen, and they did very poorly in Jackson, Wyoming, which really got the the hairs in the back of my neck kind of twitching a little bit, and uh, a lot of guides in town, and of course, I was like, hey, you know, couldn't we have put together a team of, you know, guides here in town and won this thing? And they said, Yeah, but you know, you gotta pay two thousand dollars just to enter this thing and then you gotta pay your hotel and your travel and all that stuff And most of the time it's in Europe and that's expensive. And I said, Okay, well I guess I'll never get on this thing. Well, I got a call from uh the team captain that winter and he said, How serious were you about asking about being on the team? And I said, Uh I was until you told me it came out of my own pocket. He said, well, if you find yourself some sponsor sponsor money, you can go fish on the team in Poland this year because nobody wants to go to Poland that normally goes. And uh, me and another guide in Jackson, one of my good friends, we, we finagled our way onto the team, and we both had good results, so we were invited back. Now, nowadays you have to compete to be on the team, which is going to make the American team much better than it's been even in the past few years since we've started getting some some people like myself. I mean there's a very good chance that 10 years from now we're going to have five guys on the team, or anglers let's say, gals too, that are very capable of bringing home a gold medal every time they get in the water over there in Europe. So your predictions for the future of Team USA? I think that uh, we have a good chance of getting a team medal for sure in the next three to five years and This year, I will tell you, this year we have our best team ever, and we have had some top ten finishes. I would like to see us get a top five this year. I mean, this is my last time I'm going. Uh, It it takes a lot of work, and, you know, the body's getting a little old for crawling up and down rivers for four days. But um, I really would like to see us win a medal this year, and I think we have our first real good chance.
0: Well, Jeff, uh, what about um, – we're going to have to close things up here pretty quickly, but – a lot of people ask us about resources for uh, learning how to tie the check nymphs. Are there any books, and also for the techniques, or are there DVDs out? Is there, is there are there any learning materials available?
2: There are. There's uh, probably the best one that I've seen is done by a guy by the name of Oliver Edwards. He's an older guy over in England. I can say that because he's a friend of mine, and um, he's put together two very good DVDs. One is about uh, doing the check nymphing, and unfortunately. It, the only bad thing that Ollie did on this is he learned from Vladi, at least from what I understand. I remember him going out and fishing with Vladi quite a bit when I was there too, and uh, Vladi showing him, you know, exactly what he was doing. But uh, he calls it check nymphing in his DVD, and you know, it's basically the same thing. But he also has a DVD where he ties the nymphs, and he did a lot of tying with Vladi too when when he was in Poland. So. I think it's the best one. I've seen it. We sell it at Jack Dennis, and um, yeah, it's 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 going to get you going.
0: One of the other things that uh, was asked here by John Morsey in Fairfield, Connecticut, and I may have gotten his last name wrong because it was kind of a disruption on the, in the typing. Um, what is a good source for, um, uh, he's talking about continental fishing techniques in, in Europe specifically, uh, beca- besides the occasional article about check niffing, he says, I found nothing... Else, about the centuries-old fly-fishing traditions of Spain, you know, home of the copión, and and Italy of the Basalinean flies, Um, Germany, Yugoslavia, those kind of things. Any resources along those lines?
2: I, uh, whenever I travel to a country I'm not familiar with, it's it's always on the internet, and it's just you know trying every angle uh, about the information I'm after, and a lot of times I come up with things and. A lot of times you'll find a book. Um, the problem, of course, is it might be in the language of the country. Normally it is, so it's hard to, to grasp. Um, for up-to-date information, you know, that, that was kind of about the, he yes, asked question about the history, for instance, in Spain. But for up-to-date European techniques, some of the English magazines are very good. And, uh, God, I wish I had one here. I could tell you the name of them. But I've seen some, and they always have articles about, you know, some of the European techniques. Do any of the techniques apply to uh,
1: using trico imitations? We have a question here from a fellow
2: who fishes on the South Platte where tricos are a big deal. You know, I haven't run into tricos over there, but uh, I understand in Portugal tricos might be a big part of our our fishing. And I'm going to fish at trico the way I do here in the Henry Fork. And I like to uh, put the fish that's rising for the trico downstream below me and and across and I will cast my fly past the fish and about 10 feet above them and I will raise my rod and drag my fly into the feeding lane of the fish. That does a couple of things. Most importantly, that little tiny trico, it, it, when I start dragging it, I see it. You know, a lot of times you land your trico out there on a long leader, which trico fishing is typically a 15 or 20 foot leader deal for me. Uh, I spot the fly and then I can put it exactly in the feeding lane of that fish. Typically, when you have a trico hatch, there's so many bugs in the water that that fish is not moving side to side, but more just straight up and down. And if you're an inch off to the right of them or the left of them, a lot of times they won't eat your fly.
1: That visibility factor is a a big deal for those of us who are starting to use cheaters with more and more regularity.
0: (laughs) Well, I did find, gentlemen, I found uh, two of those English magazines, so I can give people the titles. One is called Today's Fly Fisher. And the other is called Fly Fishing and Fly Tying. And these are both English magazines. I don't have time to try to find the website address on either of these, but I'm sure you can go out on the, the net and search for it and find them. We've got to finish up here. We've, we've run out of time. So uh, when we return, we'll, we'll do a drawing for an autographed copy of Jeff's book, Courier's Quick and Easy Guide to Warm Water Fishing. And we'll also be doing a drawing for a year subscription to Fly Fusion magazine, which is a Canadian
1: magazine. So uh, stick
0: with us here and see if you win.
1: Keeney's Fly Shop in Sacramento, California has an extensive inventory and fly tying department and a friendly, experienced staff whose primary goal is your complete satisfaction. Among their many services, one can attend classes on all aspects of fly fishing. One can book private waters or even take advantage of their international travel service. Visit their extensive website at www.kiene.com. That's k-i-e-n-e.com. Or call Keeney's Fly Shop at 1-800-400-0359. That's 800-400-0359. On our events calendar tonight, we see the School of Fly Fishing offers a fly fishing course August 27th through the 31st at Canyon Creek Ranch near Melrose, Montana. This is a comprehensive school for beginner to intermediate level fly fishers with small group format and personalized instruction. Go to the events calendar under Montana for contact information. Remember, list any fly fishing related event yourself on our events calendar and each week we will select one event to highlight on our show. Don't forget to remind your local clubs and fly shops to list their events. And uh, that's going to cover it from that.
0: Great. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. If you can, you can find a link on our home page in the section on tonight's show and it says, what did you think of the show? Just click on that and leave your comments. We'd sure appreciate it. So now it's time to give away an autographed copy of Jeff's book, Courier's Quick and Easy Guide to Warm Water Fly Fishing. Uh, after what you've heard tonight, I'm, I'm sure you'll be anxious to uh, take a look at some of Jeff's work and see some of his artwork as well, which is uh, readily available in his book. So gr- great uh, great pictures, illustrations, and so forth. In case you're wondering how we do this, uh, we just press a button on our computer and the program randomly selects someone from the registration database for tonight's show. And if you didn't register by now, it's too late. So, uh, But next time... When you come to the site, be sure and register for the next show so that you can participate in the drawing. So if you're the lucky winner tonight, we will contact you after the show to get your contact information so that uh, Jeff can send you the book, as well as uh, the information for the the winner of the Fly Fusion magazine subscription. So here we go, Jeff. Uh, we're going to give away one of your books, and I'm going to pick the winner here. And the winner is Don Frazier in Colorado. Don Fraser And... Was Don Frazier one of the controllers?
1: Uh, I believe you're right. That's I think true. he
0: might have been one of yep. the controllers yep. on the, the ones um, we interviewed. championship here in Colorado recently. Exactly. We met him on the river. That's uh, so congratulations, Don. Um, I'm sure you'll enjoy the book. And uh, now we're going to give away a one-year subscription to Fly Fusion. It's Canada's premier fly fishing magazine. Also, uh, the publisher, Chris Bird, also... Said he would put in a a copy of the winter edition of their magazine, magazine which had a step-by-step tying instructions for the European tungsten caddis nymph, and those instructions were given by Jack Dennis. So, Jeff, that ought to tie in nicely with our talk tonight.
2: Absolutely, what a deal!
0: Yeah, what a deal! (laughs) So let's let's see who the, the proud winner of that is, and we'll again press the magic button here and see what we come up with. And I have Rick Baker of California as the proud winner of the Fly Fusion magazine. It's a great magazine, by the way. If you haven't seen it, uh, take a look. It's got lots of uh, full content uh, articles in it, similar to what we do here on the uh, the, the show that, that we do on internet radio. So it's a, a very nice magazine. I'm sure, sure Rick's going to enjoy it.
1: Well, Jeff, uh, we want to uh, thank you for joining us tonight. We really appreciate your taking time to teach us about these European fly fishing techniques. I know uh, I'm ready to benefit from picking your brain like this. We really hope that you'll join us again in the future. I think we've got a lot of fertile territory to uh, explore, and I want to wish you good luck in Portugal at the World Championships in September. Well, thank you very much, and it was a
2: pleasure to be with you guys tonight.
0: Well, our next broadcast will be on September 6th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, we'll interview Conway Bowman on fly fishing for mako sharks. Conway will tell us about his special techniques to attract, catch, and release mako sharks on the fly. This exciting new approach allows you to sight cast to makos, see the take, and enjoy one of the most acrobatic and powerful fights of your life. You know that's going to be an exciting show and a jaw-snapping show at that, so don't miss it. We'd like to thank uh, R.L. Winston Rod Company, Paramarquette Lodge, Wright Bobbins, Royal Gorge Anglers, and Keeney's Fly Shop for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you won't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. And feel free to explore the other areas of our site, like the events calendar and the directories. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.